Hello, everyone. Today is June 30th, 2019, and this is Crowdsourced Politics. I'm your host and moderator, Anthony Strain, and today I'm joined by... Art Black, Dylan Captavilla, Matthew DeGaulle. Today we're going to discuss the first Democratic primary debates, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Without further ado, let's start the show. Should we start with the first day or the second day, or should we just kind of like pick a candidate? Bernie won. Everyone had his ideas. <laughs> and I was going to say top three. <laughs> He's definitely top three, 100% because of that. Yeah, it's, well, it's actually going to be why he loses. They're going to drown him out now. He's got no appeal. That's That was his edge, and they all pretty much appropriated it. Okay, so I would I would say that Bernie kind of won four years ago. That doesn't happen, like, overnight, right? It doesn't happen that everybody on stage suddenly has I, his ideas. That didn't happen last week. Uh, that happened a long time ago. And as far as winning this debate, who, who actually probably gains the most in the next election. Uh, I don't think Bernie's going to be up there. I think he probably lost some support just because there are a lot of other candidates that people didn't know about that they know more about now. Well, he's a victim of his own success. I mean, you had a 2016 where he pulled in all kinds of different peoples from far left to just kind of the youth who were looking for something new and exciting. And you kind of had this free floating opposition to Hillary that didn't have anyone to rally behind. But he was this kind of wizard Gandalf figure who wrote in and he was kind of cool in an uncool way. But that's not the case now. I mean, at this point, the effect he had in 2016 has really been diffused into the whole field. And there's really no reason to keep him around. I mean, the function he served then, it's kind of that window's passed. And now we have a whole field of people who are embracing his views, but in a better way. If you want to look for lessons from history, I think Bernie was absolutely a success in in 20 uh, what year is it 2016 uh 2015 i believe the, the debates were yeah 2016 he's a front runner now right he's not he's not the guy on the white horse coming to save us from hillary he's more establishment than he used to be if just for the fact that he's been in the public eye for four years now mateo you had something you wanted to interject with uh, yeah, I was actually going to say, Bernie did his job perfectly in 2016. He wasn't going to win. That wasn't even what he was supposed to do. All he wanted to do was drag the party left. And he dragged him so far left that now he doesn't even stand out. I mean, the only thing that stands out about him, actually, it doesn't stand out because Biden has it also, is being elderly. And that's not a big winner in especially Democratic circles. So do any of you think that some of that shine that was on him is removed because he's not able to thread the needle between for lack of a better term, the social justice warrior left and the progressive left? Well, no, they just adopted his ideas. Like whether or not they're going to introduce them or even sincerely try to push them when if they become president, they're just using what he was saying to get to the people that he was getting to. They're just marketing themselves. They saw his strategy, it worked, and they picked up with it. He was kind of the far left four years ago, and now he's... He's not really as extreme as he used to be. If you want to look for, you know, the more extreme candidates, you have to look at people like Marianne Williamson, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't or, think she counts. <laughs> I, I mean, she yeah. she counts as extreme, but not not farther left than Bernie. It's just everyone's trying to feign Bernieisms now. I feel like that kind of makes him not extreme by definition. Well, yeah, it depends on your reference point. I mean, if it just moves with the popularity of the party, then yeah, he's not extreme. You're right in that regard. But what yeah, I that's what I meant. What I call like the American left, he's still far out there extreme. It's just you have mainstream candidates. Eh, you know what? I take that back because 
You're right. He's still on on the left side, but would you really consider him that extreme? I mean, what are his policy positions? Right. It's it's single payer health care. He didn't move anywhere is what I'm trying to say. He's still the same old Bernie. Right. It's just everyone else came extreme. And I'm not sure if that relative to the mean, sure, then it then it's not extreme. But I still think it's extreme. When the candidates were asked if they would like abolish health insurance, they all raised their hand like instantly. Or was it just two people? It wasn't not everybody. It was only a few people on both on both nights. What was uh, there was one question where they all raised their hands. Was it reparations? Maybe no. It, reparations actually wasn't discussed. It was after. So on the first night, Castro had asked if people would ab- repeal Section thirteen twenty five. I want to say of the immigration code. And they asked that question on the second night, and pretty much everybody was like, yes. But, of course, of course. But, <laughs> and I, I would say that that's probably a win for Castro because he, he pushed the issue and it made a lot of people look dumb. But I, I have a feeling that that might get partially walked back because I, and this is something that I'm just surmising, I don't. 100% know this for sure, but I'm not entirely sure if they would be allowed to do any sort of monitoring of these individuals if it was just a civil offense. Oh, they're definitely going to walk it back, man. This is it's just like what they're doing with Bernie's positions. They're just trying to appeal to the easy ones, the the credulous lowest common denominators, the ones who are going to make Twitter loudest and show out the most for them. Cuz a lot of people like Biden's support comes from the bulk of Democrats, you know, but we don't get that in the news. We get like Twitter people, we get like the extremists, we see so much of that they're overrepresented online. And that's what these people are going for, though. That overrepresentation is actually advantageous to have. It's a small little group of people wielding more power than the majority. There's a point to that for sure. Um, you know, Biden's pulling from a lot of people who aren't very talkative, uh, who aren't very visible. But at the same time, if that's your base, I think the only place you can really go is is down. That's not their base, though. Their ba- Biden's Got the base. That's Biden's base for that's Biden's base, definitely. If you look at people online, you know, like you just said, you just said this yourself, which is that Biden isn't very popular uh, to people who are talking to people on Twitter or Facebook. And if that's if he's not popular to those people, he's not going to have very much momentum moving forward. And I, for Bernie Sanders and for people, you know, I'm 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 kind of torn on Julian Castro. You mentioned him earlier. I don't really, but I I would tentatively put him in that group as well we're discussing the the pull of the, the further left of the, the field on on that vein who was another person that you think won or like the top three? Oh, harris without a doubt harris if, if we're gonna say one i don't like to say won or lost in a debate but uh who benefited or who had the greatest rise i would say it was harris that busing comment she had i mean that was just the way she set that up you could tell that was like rehearsed too she she laid it on. Oh, totally. It was such a well delivered line. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that's pretty much unanimous just from the sources that I've seen. Everybody kind of thinks that Harris kind of stole the show on the second night. So my top three would be Harris first, probably Warren second. Even though she was on the wrong night, I think she still got a lot of positive press coverage from that from her performance. And third. I can't really think of who's third off the top of my head. I guess it would have to be someone during the second night. Um, it's not Biden. It's not Bernie. And didn't Yang get a lot of searches? After yeah, Yang? so did Tulsa, Tulsa Gabbard. True. Yeah. yeah, Yang did, but I wouldn't say that would have happened regardless. Um, I think Gabbard actually benefited big time from it. She impressed a lot of people. Like honestly, she did. 
the Democrats are so dead set on painting her as some like evil that it's going to end up helping her when people actually get familiar with her. And they're like, like, she's got nutty views, but that's it. You know, most of the electorate is <laughs> dumbasses anyway. They're nutty as hell. They're not going to be swayed by that. Yeah, I think the, the problem with Harris or not Harris, I'm sorry, but Tulsi is that she had a lot of anti-Democratic Party views you know, just even two years ago. So that's, she has to like basically apologize for, for those views, like the view on gay marriage, some of the stuff that she had said about Muslims. She was, she did the Fox news circuit yeah. she was on, on board and on the, like, we got to get rid of radical Islam. Yeah. Obama should say radical Islam. Yeah. You know, so what did the cool just, black guy do after he, when he, he didn't support uh, gay marriage, what did he do to make everyone forget? What he did was that he was an establishment figure and she is an anti-establishment figure. Exactly. Well, hold on. There's there's that, but there's also different time periods. Tulsi said that. And it's that level of insincerity that runs them, and that's why she's not doing as well as she should be. I mean, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I, I, let's let Dylan break in for a second here because I want to hear this. I mean, it, things moved very quickly. There's also a huge difference politically between being against gay marriage in like 2006 versus being against gay marriage in 2012. Um, and Tulsi falls into the latter. Uh, well, how, when did Obama come around? It wasn't 2006. It was more like 2012. Obama was in 2012 also, wasn't he? Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, she was raised into like a weird religious background. But I mean, she's been a hardcore leftist for like 20 years. So she way predates Obama's. Not on the gay marriage issue, no. Obama and her changed probably around the same time. Like, Obama was really recent. Like, everyone likes to act like that was recent. Now, now the thing is, though, is that Obama was trying to like thread that stupid like conservative needle where it's like, well, we can give them civil unions. I don't even think Tulsi was for civil unions at the time that she was against it. So I would say that would be the difference there. I mean, that is a difference. I just don't think that is consequential. I think being friends with the establishment is really what does it like this is really. Well, yeah, of course. And on a simple level, it's like high school almost. Look, in, in my memory and maybe my memory is faulty. It probably is. But, you know, I I seem to remember Obama coming around after his first win, uh, somewhere around 2009. Uh, Gabbard was still saying these lines at least two to three years after that, kind of nearing the SCOTUS decision, maybe before, maybe not after that, but closer to that than Obama, for sure. I mean, and even if that's not accurate, that's kind of the general perception. At, At least a lot of people remember it that way even if it's not true yeah art did you have something you wanted to say i'm just trying to look into the background of uh, gabbard and obama but it's a little bit questionable online but it doesn't seem like there's really much daylight between when he shifted and when she shifted and i mean a lot of obama's stuff in years past he was pretty hardcore against gay marriage i mean not really even leaving a lot of wiggle room so biden to his great credit kind of forced that situation and Obama kind of got on the right side of history, but I don't know that there's really that much difference between the two of them. Not really of note because I mean, there is a difference, but that's all it is. It's an inconsequential difference and it shouldn't be like when we, uh, when people talk about Tulsi, it's almost like with a hatred, you know, but when they talk about Obama, it's so, so relaxed. So like, Oh, it's okay, man. He was just trying to like, what'd you guys say? Thread the needle and shit. Tulsi kind of undermined the Obama administration. You know, she went over to Syria to talk to Assad. When you get down to it, the reason that they give Obama a pass and they don't give one to Tulsi is that at that time, Obama was the establishment. If you're anti-establishment, basically, it doesn't really matter what your reasons are. 
as far as the, the Democrats concerned, you're effectively a Republican. That, this is the binary life that we live now, where it doesn't matter what your morality is, what your reasoning is, you're either on the team or you're not on the team. And they looked at Gabbard as somebody who was not on the team. And that level of insincerity is exactly what I'm trying to point out. There is no difference. They're just doing it because she's not part of the club. I don't know if insincerity is the right word. Um, uh, they're pretending like there's one reason why they're doing it when the real reason is she's not part of a club. She went against their their status quo, really. I mean, she did something stupid, but I feel like if Obama did that, they'd be a little more forgiving or any establishment figure. Yeah, I don't think they're really pretending anything. Um, I think I think they're sincere beliefs. Pretending, no, but I think that they never remember their positions, and it's oddly convenient. That might be correct. Yes, oddly convenient might be correct. I, I think it's I think it's more along the lines of a bias rather than arguing in bad faith. At least I would assume that. I, I wouldn't say they're arguing in bad faith, but they definitely have the wherewithal to know that they're full of shit. They just block it out. <laughs> that would be in bad faith. Yeah. No, it's, it's like talking evolution with a creationist, you know, you could break it down. You could teach them, you could get them to admit micro evolution, quote unquote exists. They'll still tell that same line. I think that's insincerity. I can, I can't euphemize that at all by calling it just, just a bias. So do we have consensus that Harris and Warren were top two people to benefit from the debate? Do we have a third? If you're looking at the third, I'd probably say it's a tie between Biden, or not Biden, I'm sorry, Bernie, who basically didn't win or lose, but by letting everyone else above them fight, you kind of let them bleed each other and nobody really took a swing at him and landed. So, you know, as long as they're bleeding each other, that kind of benefits him. Uh, Williamson, who for some reason got some attention and you now have Republicans donating to her campaign to get her into the next debate. Did anybody understand anything that Williamson was trying to say? She came off to me as completely incoherent. I make it a point to not listen to her. So do you know those people that are like, you know, if you just believe in the universe, the universe will provide. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, that's that's the kind of person, that's the kind of character she is. But at the same time, when she was actually speaking, she kind of would say one thing, get like halfway through finishing a point. You know, they were all platitudes and then like move on to the next one without finishing <laughs> anything else. Uh, and it, it just became she rambled and it was very confusing. Uh, and I don't understand why anybody would s see that, would listen to that, and decide they wanted to support her. But she did get attention, I guess, just by the benefit of having her voice on television. She's benefiting from the fact that Republicans think that she's gold for them. I mean, she is. And to be perfectly fair, you're probably about 25 IQ points too smart to understand where she's going with that. <laughs> Only 25? I'm insulted, Art. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a zone of people who are maybe not so stupid that they can't understand words, but you know they're maybe not the, the, the sharpest spoons in the drawer, who hear that sort of thing and they can't quite parse it so it sounds wise. And for people like that... It's the same thing as poetry. It's exactly. So... That's insulting to poetry. No, not at all. People draw their own meaning from what could be even nonsense. You know, people have it. It's like abstract art, even. You know, it's just uh, people okay, draw deep meaning from complete bullshit a lot. And as long as you give the right social cues, you could say complete gibberish. You just have to hit those cues. That's what she's doing. She's just finding that sweet spot where people like her 
make billions of dollars, I'm not her specifically, but that industry uh, of people who are just smart enough to kind of think that that's wise, but not smart enough to realize it's gibberish. And within that zone, she's cleaning up. And that's all. I mean, that's why she's there is that she's selling books. She's selling a certain mindset. And it's, it's just an industry. It just happens to be that right now she's pursuing it by way of politics. Do you think that she is uh, harping on reparations just to break, it, break into the black market? Or rather, the African-American market? I honestly think that she believes it's really easy to do, like any policy almost. She probably has no clue what she's even saying. You know, she reminded me of those people who like walk into, into business rooms and just like yell synergy. Or she's like, you guys have to be nicer to everyone. Like, you know, like somehow having rational self-interest is evil. Love will conquer everything. Exactly. Love will conquer everything. But like going back to the whole social cue thing, she could just basically say like some generic line that Democrats will eat up about racism being bad, you know, some stunning and brave line and then throw in some gibberish about the universe. And everyone's like, hell yeah, racism is bad. You know, they're not even like being critical of her. I know. Like, I'm, I'm still amazed. And we've seen plenty of this after after the debates, you know, like just like like between Biden and Kamala Harris, you know, there's there's people who are like reminding us that racism is bad, and they expect to be like given commendations for having that viewpoint. It's it's absurd, and like people eat that up. They're like, you know, people loved Biden's sort of half-assed apology to me. It wasn't really an apology, like acknowledging that racism affects Kamala Harris, and people loved that. It was so weird. Yeah, it's it's the the kind of worst kind of virtual signaling that you can think of. It's just. It's just surface level, and it's just like, yes, this exists. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Trump is hate, and we will defeat him with love. <laughs> Revolution. Is that like Dance Dance Revolution, except it's just love? Uh, I started with Ron Paul, and I basically just use it as a catch-all now to like say, you suck. It's happening! Second look at Ron Paul. <laughs> Second look. Second, you, you mean like fifth look? Seriously, that guy was... I don't know. Well, I do know why he's so popular. For the same reason we were just talking about the voters being like drawn to like simple shit like that. All he has to do is say some liberty stuff, and everyone's like, "Oh, fucking yeah!" And the Fed, it's like, yeah, everyone agrees with what he says. But what's the feasible? Fed. Oh, except yeah, and the Fed. That's <laughs> just people who never heard of the Federal Reserve. Those are the ones he appeals to. They're like, "Whoa, I just looked it up. This Federal Reserve thing actually exists, guys. He wasn't lying." <laughs> <laughs> Like, deadass, it's so sad to hear these people, man. Like, they, they find these facts, and they're like, well, this is what he claimed. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's true, but that has nothing to do with backing up the rest of the subtext. Yeah. Let, let's let's take it back to, to the debates, because Ron Paul is old news, and Rand Paul is soon to be the same. But since we're talking about people that walked away with, with big gains, I think Castro actually did because of, of the second debate night where they asked that question. What are, what are your guys' thoughts? Within Texas... I think that that was probably more of an intra-Texas fight between Beto and Castro. I'm not super familiar with Texas politics other than you can tell the state is turning blue. It's not quite blue, but it's getting there. And yeah, it's you have purplish. Power struggle as far as how that evolution is going to be. And I feel like Castro is more setting himself up you know, to take out Beto within Texas because that's really where he sees his next fight. I can agree with that, but I was more talking about the point of the eliminating 1325 or whatever the act is for immigration. Because on the first night, everybody's like, what's that? And on the second night, yeah, I'd, I'd eliminate it. Like, how do, how do you guys feel about that? I don't believe them at all. I think they're just, when it comes to immigration, 
every Democrat, they don't have to be conniving. They don't have to be malicious or anything. They know exactly what they need to say. It's about appealing to people. And they, they are out there assuming that all the people are just basically like far leftists. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to immigration, it's definitely it's definitely more of a heartstrings issue than it is uh, anything else. I mean, one you never really hear like objective analysis based on stats or numbers on either side unless they're very, very narrow uh, and kind of, I mean, mostly on the right, pretty racist. Um, you kind of have the scientific racism going into all the immigration issue quite a bit, obviously. Huge. Yeah, but uh, sorry, I got off track talking about the Democratic debates. I mean, it's there's it's completely emotional for Democrats. You know, there's there's no sound policy. There, there's no real direction that people go. They just kind of react to everything that's in the news, and everything in the news is it's objectively terrible i mean it's objectively terrible but it's story you know like the new york times story like it's it's a photo of you know that's a horrifying photograph that they published on their cover but at the same time you know that that got a lot of attention there are 300 to 400 people who die every year crossing well i mean crossing into the u.s most most of them don't drown in the river most of them make it into the desert and then die of exposure but you don't really hear about that even even right now when people are talking about deaths you know, of people crossing illegally, you don't hear about that. You just see those two dead people, and then you have uh, people blaming, you know, Trump, the Republican administration, for something that's been happening for a long time that maybe they don't really deserve blame for. Art, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, just that it's a problem with that type of format is it incentivizes people to take the most extreme positions. But this gets down to that old problem of Republicans saying, you're for open borders. You guys are open borders. And Democrats saying, no, we're not. We believe in the rule of law. But we also believe that all these laws are racist and we shouldn't enforce them, which is fine, except that a lot of Democrats and probably a, a plurality, if not a majority, actually do believe that we should enforce some level of border control. They just wish that it wasn't cruel and awful. Like what we're doing is cruel and awful. And most Democrats don't want that. But that's not to say that they think that anyone should be able to come into the US and get free healthcare, which when you have this kind of debate, it kind of puts people into this position where they feel that they need to say that in order to not sound racist. And this is a terrible problem that Democrats get themselves stuck in. I think that has more to do with, along the lines of if healthcare is a human right, then we don't deny it to people just because they don't belong here or are criminals. But why not Nigerians or Bangladeshis or people across the world? I mean, when you say human right, again, this is, I think, a problem you run into with the vast majority of Democrats is that if, if you set up a condition where people are incentivized to come here and you're going to pay all of these things, it's fine to say it's a human right. It's a noble thing. But when you have that kind of structure, there's really creating a magnet and Democrats do worry about that. And it's not while Republicans worry about that in a more racially tinged way, there's still the question of resources and people needing to be taken care of that, you know, we're not here to take care of the whole world. So it's a balancing act. And it's just it's hard to have to rush to one extreme to the other, which our politics often forces us to do. I think that a lot of the Democrats are actually taking what, and even within the primary contenders, is taking what you had just said uh, position, because it seems that they're very hesitant to go into very specifics. And then they also say, well, of course, we should not everybody can come in. So I think there, there, there is this 
what had and Mateo was saying, there's this uh, kind of like farther further left draw from like an anti-border crowd that's causing them to try to like veer a little left, but they're not going there in my opinion. They're just not. Yeah, I think immigration is really interesting because uh, pretty much everyone within the democratic spectrum, you know, everyone from Bernie to, to Yang to Biden, they all kind of have the same position, which is what Art just said. But at the same time, that's a very conceptual position. It's not really, there's, there's very little on specific policy in that. When it comes to specific policy, what will you change? What exactly will you do regarding immigration law? They basically, it's just very little things, you know, like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll end painting uh, children without their parents. But at the same time, that's not a very big change overall in the, in the broad scheme of things when it comes to immigration law. It's one of those complicated situations that a lot of people are looking for simple answers to, and they just don't exist. But that hurts people politically to acknowledge that. Uh, there are a lot of things that don't have simple answers that people have taken political positions on. It's it's kind of unique in the fact that there's <laughs> is there anyone you would consider a policy wonk on immigration? No, not really. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Economics, foreign policy, sure, but not really immigration. I think that's kind of the line that Beto was going to go for. He's he's released a comprehensive immigration plan, but I don't know it off the top of my head. It didn't really get into the debates with it either, except Castro calling him out. So, so what did you guys think about Kamala Harris's food fight line? Do you how do you think that played out? That was another well rehearsed and well delivered line. You think it was well rehearsed? Oh, something like that. Come on, that felt way too inorganic. Yeah, no. That was definitely planned ahead of time. I think the important part of that line was not what she said, but that she rehearsed it and was willing to deploy it against a man who's basically a lion of the Democratic Party. I mean, this is Obama, Barack Obama's vice president. He's a luminary. The fact that she's willing to stick him with the knife shows how serious she is about winning. And that matters to people. Oh, it was a power move. Definitely a dominance move. Are we talking about two different lines here? I was talking about the food fight line, not the the line against Biden about the busing. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry. The food fight line was directed towards everyone. Yes, yeah, that was just a good mama bear line. She, just re- she, she flexed on the whole crowd. But what, do you guys think that that was rehearsed? Oh, yeah, definitely. To an extent. Okay. I may have been ready for it, but I, I don't know. I feel that one may have been a little bit more off the cuff. She, she probably knew something like that was going to happen and was ready to flex like that. And the crowd played into her hands. Okay, yeah, I could see that. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you want, though, in a candidate, isn't it? Somebody that's able to like foresee things like that happening and then bring people back down to a level that's that's uh, most people actually want. Yeah, no, she definitely was keeping that one in her back pocket and then pulled it out at the right time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not exactly hard to foresee a bunch of people fighting in a in a debate. Well, I mean, you you have all of these like all of these candidates. Everyone comes prepared with something. Right. Except Biden. <laughs> right. Except Biden, apparently. Uh, not everybody gets to deliver them well or, you know, not everything lands. That one landed. Right. So I'm not going to give her too many points for it, but it, it came off as imposing. What did you guys think about the way the debate was handled the first night versus the second night? Uh, they were both a clusterfuck. Why, why would you say that? I mean, just too many people. I mean, there's no getting around that. Just too many damn people on stage. When you have in people each night, that's just too much. You have people who are standing up there for an hour, and Yang isn't the only one. You have people who are standing up there for an hour who got maybe 45 seconds to, to 90 seconds of speaking time. That's absurd. 
these people are running for president of the United States, you can't have that. So from from my perspective, I actually liked the first night debate better than the second night debate. I think the first night's debate was more reserved than the second night debate. So you're able to actually hear more of people's positions than you were on the second night. The first night, you know, if Tim Ryan were on the, the stage for the second night, he wouldn't have gotten a word off, but he, he actually played a big part in the first night. He had a presence on the stage, which is more than you can say for the second night, which was dominated by the top four or five candidates. Fair. Yeah, I, I think Mayor, Mayor de Blasio also um, did fairly well on the first night. Being the voice of... Yes, we're the can- we're the party that should tax the wealthy at seventy percent. Yes, we should be for workers' rights. I mean, all of that stuff. I don't think that anybody that watched both nights of debates could say that the Democratic Party is ignoring the working man anymore either. Really? Why would you say really? Well, aside from a really short interlude from like De Blasio and let me think, De Blasio, uh, I don't really think that it was about the working man per se. I think that the Democrats came across as being interested in quote unquote identity politics. I didn't get that at all. I think that that's what most of the debate was about. Right. That's what I'm saying is that it, those kind of hot button issues are kind of what is driving the, the base and driving the people who are engaged right now. The average democratic voter who's not super engaged with politics, doesn't watch a lot of news maybe not super into the weeds, you know, what we would consider as news junkies, you know, relevant points. Uh, they probably saw it a lot differently and as maybe not super relevant to their lives. I don't know. I thought there was a, a good n- number of questions about healthcare. There's a, a couple of good questions in there about some of the other, the other things. Climate change got mentioned. There was the Iran stuff. Workers care about climate change in Iran. I would say that workers would care about the healthcare debate, the uh, tax questions. Um, okay, I guess you have a fair point now that I'm thinking about it more. You're right about healthcare. They do care about that. But a lot of that other stuff, like you know, giving healthcare to even or undocumented immigrants or Iran or these other things, maybe not top of their burner. Yeah, so I, I guess whether or not they, they're for the working man, I guess that depends on whether you consider being against millionaires and billionaires uh, being for the working man. I'm looking at the transcript for the first night to see exactly what every, how everybody answered. There's a question, you know. Uh, so the question is, Looks like it's directed towards Elizabeth Warren. You have many plans, blah, blah, blah. This comes at a time 70% of Americans say the economy is doing well. And what do you say to those who worry this kind of significant change could be risky to the economy? Uh, Warren, she talks about drug companies. She talks about African-Americans and Latinx families, Klobuchar. She talks about Donald Trump, Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke is the first person to answer with like an actual economic policy. And he talks about uh, taxing corporations and taxing the wealthy. It, it's its just, it's not very policy heavy when it comes to helping the working man. I don't really see many people really referencing the working, the average working American uh, as, as an identity. It's really, a lot of it's about race. I just did a, a control F on the second night debate and workers only mentioned a few times, like five. So 
I guess I got a different impression just because it's what I'm more, my bias is more likely to focus in on. When you're talking about helping the average working American, why do you want to break it up like that for every single policy instead of talking about broad economic policy? Because it's about white people. Yeah, I mean. When you talk about the working class, traditionally, that was more of a leftist sentiment. But as times have changed a bit, it's commonly more understood to be about the working class is majority white. So you have kind of a shout out to poor white people who tend to have views that are not particularly progressive. And Mm -hmm. we have this unfortunate situation where the people that would most stand to benefit from progressive policies see progressive policies as a threat to their identity. And the Democrats have yet to really figure out how to thread that needle. And unfortunately, the Republicans have figured out how to thread it by simply appealing to racism. <laughs> um, True fact. I suppose, that's, I suppose you could call that threading the needle. Uh, I would, or smashing it. Yeah, that's, that's what I would consider it. And they smashed the needle with a hammer. Yep. so you have, uh, I'm seeing some more Julian Castro talking about the, the women's pay gap. Uh, again, that's an issue that is important, but it's not about the question that's being asked, which is really about tax policy. Uh, you know, uh, kind of boring stuff that people need to have a plan for, that people need to have uh, ideas and policy that they want to implement. And I'm just not seeing it. I didn't, I'm not seeing that anywhere in these transcripts. Uh, that's a fair it's point. Very, it's, it's all very, it's all very soundbite-y. Uh, and it's pretty clear when you read through it instead of listening. Who would we say are the biggest uh, losers from this? Aside from Biden, who... His entrails are still decorating the wall of that uh, debate hall. I mean, Biden lost like eight points in the next day polling. Almost all to Harris. Oh, I just realized another winner of the debate, uh, Buttigieg. Do you think so? Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, I think he's one of the winners. He had a very sudden and dramatic popularity surge, um, kind of based on the fact that he's, he's a very interesting person in himself. But there's still a lot of people who don't know his name, and I think he came off very well, and I think he's going to get a bump. I think he's going to get a solid bump in the polls from it. You don't think his his answer to the question about um, how he wasn't able to get it done for the uh, the shooting that happened within in his community is going to have any negative impact? Um, I haven't really seen much on that afterwards. I mean, I didn't think it looked good. I didn't think it was necessarily devastating. Okay, fair. Uh, and I think the positive ultimately outweighed the negative. Mateo, you got anything you want to add to this? Well, I was trying to think of the biggest loser, and I'd have to agree it was Biden. He just got – it was like a battle, a war of attrition. And most of the his loss went to Harris, if, if uh, I'm not mistaken about the recent polls that came out. That's basically it. Most people really didn't show much change up or down, aside from some marginal folks like uh, uh, Gabbard, who you know had a slight movement, but – Really, the big play was, you know, Biden down, uh, Harris up. Uh, yeah, so I think another big loser was Cory Booker. <laughs> His face when Beto started speaking Spanish was just like, oh my God, I was going to do that. When Beto started speaking Spanish, I was like, hey, you mean I, I get it, you're pandering, sure. <laughs> and then Booker immediately started doing it afterwards. And I was like, okay, you just got jealous of someone who got to pander before you. <laughs> and, exactly. and with the thing with Beto, though, is that speaking Spanish is like, not a shtick for him really he represent he represented el paso and that was actually a pretty big like thing he actually knows spanish pretty like he actually knows spanish booker probably just memorized that thing <laughs> thing is he speaks spanish the way he speaks english so his <laughs> english has that weird kind of cadence 
that's very particular to Beto. But yeah, like I kind of wanted to make fun of his like high school Spanish teacher Spanish. But like after listening for a bit, I'm like, oh, he actually knows how to speak Spanish. It's just his particular cadence is not how most Spanish speakers would talk, but neither is his English. So that's just kind of Beto. Yep. Now, with, with Beto, uh, it's not it's not exactly pandering. I mean, he did try to get into the um, Hispanic uh, Congressional Caucus because he represented El Paso. What's everybody's opinion about how the Democrats handled the Iran question? I I don't remember any particularly interesting moments from that question. I'll have to look up look it up. Well, what I was going to say was that a lot of people seem to have said that they would try to leverage a better deal rather than just re-signing the one that Obama had gotten. And that's a pretty big change from where Democrats were uh, about a year ago. See, my opinion on Iran is just it's there's really only one good answer you can give uh, because, (laughs) you know, it's not like Syria where you can make a good case for, for military intervention. It, pretty much everyone recognizes uh, on on all fronts that any military conflict with Iran is a horrible, horrible idea. Uh, <laughs> so 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 every candidate on there can genuinely uh, appeal to the anti-war crowd. You know, I'm against war with Iran, and they will get a huge pop. Tim Ryan uh, got taken to task by I believe it was uh, Gabbard on that question, though. No, it was the Afghanistan question, rather. Yeah, and that's that's when he made his comments about uh, the Taliban flying <laughs> flying planes into the Twin Towers and looked like an idiot. Um, Gabbard, Gabbard definitely uh, put the axe in his back with that one. Deservedly so. Yeah, deservedly so. He said something very stupid. What was his? What was Tim Ryan's? So, what was Tim Ryan's position on that issue? He basically said that you can't just leave Afghanistan overnight because it would fall to the Taliban and that would be a negative for the region and the United States interest. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, Gabbard's response was uh, that the Taliban aren't going to disappear and whether we leave. She basically said that whether we leave now or in 20 years, it's going to happen. So may as well tear the Band-Aid off. Yeah, to paraphrase. uh, Yeah, that was the impression I got too. No, that's a, that's pretty much precisely what she said. Yeah, I think Tulsi handedly won that that argument, and I think that was my main take. That that back and forth was my main takeaway uh, from Tim Ryan. Uh, so I think that's probably how his night went. Honestly, that's the fundamental reason we're still in Afghanistan is that the American people don't want to hear that we can't win there, and that the Taliban are going to be there whether it's next month or next century. That's not that's beyond our control. That's something that we're not willing to do what would be necessary to change that. And we're trying to manage it, which is genocide. It would be genocide because it would have to take out a large. Yes. Uh, like Mao and his re-education camps. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, or let's call it a very enthusiastic, um, you know, uh, re-education regime uh, that was probably two generations. Yeah, I mean, and it would take a generation or two, but, you know, if we went in, you know, whole hog and we're ready to do another 50 to 100 years, then sure, you know, that's a, it's all on the table. But, uh, you know, nobody wants to do that. We want to pretend that we can, you know, send some drones up and put some boots on the ground and, 
you know, win people over. And that's not remotely what's going to happen. Wait, are you telling me that, you know, the uh, some 18 year old from Alabama who joined the military because it was the best paying job he could get isn't qualified to teach uh, Afghanis uh, how to live a Western lifestyle? I mean, you know, shocking to uh, think that Jeffersonian democracy is not going to spring from, you know, an infantry platoon that's just told to patrol <laughs> a sector for, you know, nine months. But no, uh, just wait for these guys to leave. I mean, I, you know, and again, this is maybe a little bit dated, but, you know, I had buddies from, you know, back in like 2001 who showed up to certain parts of Afghanistan and people had never even heard of America. They're like, oh, the Russians, you guys are back. And we're like, no, no, we're not Russians. We're Americans. And they're like, what, what the fuck is an American? We, we never. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. That's rare. Yeah. I mean, that, that's some like early on shit, but I mean, that's kind of what we rolled into. That isn't a part of the world that you can just like patrol through now and then and just transform them. I mean, that's deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched over thousands of years. It's just, it's way beyond anything that we can change overnight. And, you know, Americans want easy fixes. We want to blow shit up and for that to change things. And that's not what's going to happen. The explanation you just gave uh, <laughs> for what we, what would happen, what we would have to do there was much more detailed and, uh, coherent than anything that I heard uh, on foreign policy in either debate night. Foreign policy wasn't really focused on much at all. It, there were, I mean, there were some questions, there were some questions on both nights. Uh, so the first night, uh, you know, I think Iran was mentioned on both nights. Uh, right, but it was just like a particular, like, this is happening now, how would you do all this? There was also the question, you know, what's the, what's the biggest threat to the United States? That was a question that was posed to everyone. Uh, yeah, a lot of people said China. Uh, a couple of people said Russia. You know, uh, I think uh, if I can remember correctly, uh, De Blasio said Donald Trump. Uh, you know, got a huge applause to that, but didn't answer the question. <laughs> uh, so, I what I thought was interesting that a lot of people still say China is more of a threat uh, than Russia, uh, but I think a few people did draw the distinction that Russia is more of a military threat, while China is more of an economic. Climate change got mentioned too. Yeah, climate change did get mentioned. Uh, I think that was was that Williamson. Uh, I think it was a couple of the uh, Beto mentioned mentioned it on the first night. I think he said China and climate change. Um, uh, is it Inflee? Elise in Inlease? I I'm terrible at pronouncing names. Yes, um, but he also said that. Yes, the guy from Washington, uh, Delaney, John Delaney. Do you guys remember hearing anything about? Do you, do you remember hearing anything he said on the first night? Not at all. He was the uh, capitalism is good. You all suck guy, right? He was. Um, he was. He was. He was the guy who kind of didn't belong on stage uh, the first night, which is saying something because yeah, because which is saying something because a lot of those people probably didn't belong on stage. I think he was the. I think he was the first one to answer the biggest threat question. He said China, and it seemed like a lot of people just kind of repeat. I mean, I don't necessarily think that that's fair to say to just repeated them because China is making moves economically and mil militarily throughout the entire world. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, there have been involved in Africa buying up land. Oh, yeah. No, at, sure. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not the legitimate answer. Uh, what I'm saying is that it looked like physically looked like a lot of people looked at him, looked at the camera and, and then just gave the same answer. He, that's what it looked like. Like they weren't prepared for the question. Ah, uh, yeah. 
I, it was more along the lines. I think that was a, a function of the fact that whoever asked the question, I don't remember who it was, but said, you got to just give me one, one, one line answer. Go. Cause we're running out of time. Yeah. So I found who it was. It was Beto O'Rourke. Okay. That's what I thought. Uh, Julian Castro did as well. So I think we've kind of exhausted uh, the debate itself a bit, unless anybody has anything that they want to add. And the third. <laughs> so I think what we should we should talk about now, just for maybe another ten minutes or so, is like how do you think people are going to react to various uh, like demographically? How do you think people are going to react? Because there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about how. You know, the African American uh, vote was uh, was pandered to the Latino vote. Do you do you think that that's how most people will see it? Do you think that the uh, pandering or the legitimate concerns that were brought up, like criminal justice reform, the Biden fiasco, do you think these things are actually going to matter and move the needle as far as uh, who gets support from which group, or do you think it's all going to be a wash and we have to wait until the next debate? I think it's all about who the Black Caucus really moves to, if they stick with Biden or if they keep moving over towards uh, Harris, because a couple of Black Caucus members uh, supported Harris, and that was supposed to be like a big deal. You think it's going to come from up high, or you think it's going to be bottom up? I think it's going to be a little more top down, because I, I think it's really, things are queued in. It's almost, it's like any social order. Dylan, you said you wanted to break in? I'm going to disagree with Mateo here. Uh, I think it's entirely bottom up. I, I don't think what the Black Caucus says is really going to matter uh, when it comes to who's going to vote for who, just because, uh, I, and I realize that this might be a very unpopular thing to say, but I think it's less, so please don't kill me. Uh, I think Kamala Harris is going to steal the Black vote. I think she's going to get, I think she's, it's it's going to probably be 80 to 90% Kamala Harris to Kamala Harris. And that's just because of how people vote they they vote with people they can identify with and if you're part of you know if you're part of that community part of the black community you're probably going to get most of the black votes now if you look at Gillibrand though she's everything about her should have her up front but the party is shunning her she's been blackballed like she's not getting the right write up she's not getting anything harris on the other hand is going to get that support that's a big part of why like i get what you're saying and you're absolutely right but these people have to be visible and that comes from the top so that's kind of along the lines of the argument. Um, I don't remember who wrote the book, but the book is called The Party Decides uh, Theory of How Primaries Go, that they're mostly um, top-down. There's, there's, of course, there's organic, there's organic bottom-up, but a lot of the exposure and stuff comes from top-down. Exactly. If you're not given a soapbox to stand on, you're not going to get the people who would likely fall in line with you to actually be appealed. Go ahead, Art. It's, I was going to say, it's an interlocking situation where if you appeal to the, uh, you know, let's call them the party elite, but also the base in the right way, and the right people see you as being kind of cohesive with what they think is going to win, then yeah, things are going to start to align in your favor. And if you look at someone like Gillibrand versus Harris, and it's like Mateo said, it's very easy to say, look, these are very similar people, but for whatever reason, one is getting shut out and the other isn't. Yeah, Gillibrand is very qualified. She's got a lot to go on to. She's just, she's a black sheep. She does, but personality-wise or however she comes across, it's a lot more, uh, I guess, transparent, whereas, you know, Harris is a little bit more, um, I mean, she's certainly ruthlessly ambitious at the same level that Gillibrand is. But I think that the people who are actually, just from a marketing standpoint, looking at these different candidates, 
you know, if you look at the whole, you know, party is a game and these are different characters you want to employ into different roles, you know, there's certain advantages to, let's say, Biden, but you also see the terrible weaknesses. And once you sort all these people for their strengths and weaknesses, Harris winds up being your best pick, even though you have very similar ones like Gillibrand. And if Gillibrand is not as advantageous as someone like Harris, then, you know, a miss as good as a mile. You know, I mean, the party has no interest in trying to back someone like that when they feel on the main that Harris is probably the safe bet. And I think like what you're talking about, how Gillibrand can't get any love, she's not going to because that's just not how the system is going to work. The system is going to defend itself and, you know, very subtly fall behind the people who, you know, are felt to be most likely to uh, get across the finish line. Well, I, you know, it's really interesting because Gillibrand has, for years, she has been a product of the establishment. She was basically groomed to take over Clinton's position and then uh, afterwards kind of to follow her. It was kind of presumed that she would follow her into uh, being a front runner for the Democratic nomination. And she's not even top five right now. It's because Al Franken. It's because Al Franken was royalty and she went after him. He was a sacred cow and she got too close. That that probably has something to do with it just because that's 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 a lot of her name recognition is her 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 tiff with Al Franken. That has ninety-five percent to do with it. Yeah, but going back to what Art said, I think he's right, uh, in that, you know, Jill Brand is kind of a duplication of a can of candidates that already exist without as much benefit to her, uh, from a demographic standpoint. Yeah, and it's pretty much the whole reason why the Democratic Party is making sure she's a nobody. So do we have any uh, predictions going forward? Same as ever. Kamala Harris will be the next nominee. So how many how many candidates do you think are going to be in the next uh, next debate? Do we know that yet? I don't think that's been determined. I think the the threshold um, has been raised. But do you have a prediction? A prediction for for what? Uh, who do you think the next nominee might be, like Matteo did, or who do you think uh, going to be top three, whatever? I'm right now. I'm going to have to put my money on who looks best right now, which is going to be Kamala Harris. So, Art, what's your prediction? Still Harris, just because I think no matter how you look at the race and how it's going to break out, you have a lot of competing forces out there that ultimately don't want Biden in the lead, even though they love the idea of destroying Trump. So. Biden is getting this weird burst of energy that will dissipate over time because he's just too old. And even when you put the age aside, a younger version of Biden is still the wrong person to lead the Democratic Party of 2020. He just not just being a white guy or being, you know, a working class guy or whatever, but it's a weird bundle of attitudes. And yeah, he's just boring. He's he wants nothing but lateral moves for America because it's just what he, I don't know. This is exactly how I describe it. He's not looking forward. And in a weird way, he's kind of like a safe version of MAGA where like he sees a past that America worked better. And, you know, he, and that was a unfair slander as far as saying that he loves segregationists and all that. He, I mean, his point was that those guys were bad guys, but he could still work with them. But still he sees that mindset of being able to work with segregationists or whatever as, you know, a desirable thing. And the Democratic Party of 2020 wants war. You know, they don't want for people to get along with racism. They want 
open combat. So I think that just not just ideologically, but in a mindset way, he's just out of step with the time. So he can't make it to the finish line. He's just not going to. And it's going to be someone who's a lot younger that's more ready to kind of bring the pain. See, I, I think I think what Biden said, you know, that he, that working with segregationists, I think that could have played off very differently uh, had he had he planned it out maybe a little better. You know, if someone had asked him, you know, so why do you think you can work with Republicans? And he gave the line, the quip, uh, because I've worked with segregationists before. That would have that would have brought down the house. Uh, but instead he just kind of, he, he, well, he fucked it all up really. Um, and I think that's just going to keep happening. I think you're right. I think, I think art's going to, or excuse me, not art. <laughs> I'm looking at your name. Uh, I'm looking at, at, at Joe. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think you're right. I think Joe's just kind of, I don't think he's going to stay in front. So you've given your prediction that Joe's going to, to falter. Who do you think is going to take his place? I mean, obviously, I think that Andrew Yang is eventually going to step into the lead and take <laughs> over. But for whatever reason that doesn't happen, then, you know, even though Warren is getting a bit of a boomlet right now, I think that if it gets to the end and people are looking at Harris versus Warden, nobody really cares about policy. They do care about skin color. So, you know, Harris is ultimately going to have a bit of an advantage. Mm -hmm. And Harris is also more inherently combative. And I think that while Warren has kind of found that fire in her belly, she's way improved as a candidate. She's doing much better. But Harris is at her natural state. Yeah, I agree. Warren used to be very hard to watch and listen to. Uh, she was very popular. Um, it, it, wait, look, this is what way back in 2008. You know, she was a popular for what she did, but she wasn't a politician back then. Um, and when she was running for Senate, for Senate, you know, she had the whole, oh God, I, I hate to frame it like this, but the Cherokee Indian thing um, that was handled very poorly. And then she had her beer bottle thing, which was handled very poorly. But, uh, you know, it's, she has improved a lot. Um, but at the same time, I think if you're going to put any candidate uh, on stage against Dan Donald Trump, of anyone who was on the Democratic stage, uh, you know, the first night or the second night, it would probably, I think Kamala Harris is going to be your best bet to, to, take, to take him on, you know, head to head. Yeah, there, and there's a structural advantage to having Harris in play, which Trump has a limited range of, uh, of capability against a, a black female, let's say. And he could very easily go a little bit too far. And while granted, you know, if you want to divide everybody up into different camps and people that are open to that sort of thing, probably don't like Trump already. But even still, there are some cultural taboos that I think Trump hasn't quite yet crossed or that a lot of Republicans haven't had to face that in a long protracted battle with someone who is, you know, uh, not white and not male. I mean, even with Hillary, he was able to kind of get around it because people didn't like Hillary. It's different with Harris. I mean, she's not really disliked on that level by any means, even though she's not exactly charming. Uh, and I think that he could really go a little too far or say something that he puts a lot of even Republicans in a position where like, yo, we can't defend that. Like, you know, he he kind of he went a little too far. And that's a Yeah. Are you just are you talking about like, like, do you think he's going to go too far as in just like what, like he's a racial slur? Or something racist or sexist. I mean, you know, Don Jr. already had to delete something that was kind of sort of birtherist, 
And, you know, you can kind of, I mean, he, Trump kind of got away with that when he wasn't really a candidate and he wasn't actually facing Obama. Like he had a Twitter fight with Obama, but they weren't really candidates. You know, it was kind of a, uh, it, it was in different columns, but I think head to head, you know, it's, I think it could look really bad for him and he doesn't need to be that bad. The margins are so tight. I mean, his victory in 2016 was so razor thin that he doesn't have a lot of room to spare. And if he says something that just sits wrong with the American people, you know, I think the danger is a lot more elevated than it was against Hillary, who a lot of people just didn't like. I think Dylan has the, wants to make the last point and then we're going to call it a show. Uh, I really don't think that there's a line that Trump can cross that w- people will think goes too far. I mean, even, even, if he, even if he just straight up, you know, called Kamala the N-word, like I think on stage on national television, if I don't think he would be, he wouldn't be apologetic for it. And I think people would just be like, oh, well, that's Trump. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect his base all that much. I think he's, I don't think anything he does is going to affect his, the percentage of votes that he gets ultimately. Um, or let me say the absolute number of votes he gets ultimately. Um, I think it really all depends on the Democratic candidate and how how many votes they can, how many people that they can get out. Uh, it's it's not about Trump. It's it's about bringing out the Democratic vote. I think is ultimately what it's going to be. And when we're picking a Democratic nominee, that's what we should be keeping in mind. But it's still six of one, half dozen of the other, as far as depressing the GOP versus rallying the Democrats. Uh, I think I think there are different tactics for doing for for doing that. Well, everybody, I think that that's time. I'm glad that everybody could join us. Feel free to hit us up on Crowdsource Politics, our Facebook page or our Facebook group. Hopefully we see you at the next show.